welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I am joined in our postmodern conservative series by my friend Pete Spiliakos for the second part of our conversation about rhetoric and politics, about realism in America, and especially our situation now, which we call, as people do on Twitter, the Great Awakening. Before Trump even ran for office, much less won the presidency, America's liberals turned woke. The high priests of liberalism at the New York Times and elsewhere had already started talking more and more about white supremacy, about systemic racism, about America as essentially unjust since the founding. This was years before the 1619 project of the New York Times, and indeed now we can see it prepared the way for this kind of calumny, an attempt to assassinate the national memory. I want to start from where Pete left off in the first part of our conversation. Republicans pretend, conservatives pretend, now and then that they give a damn about the woke revolution that's taking place primarily online, but they don't really, so they don't do anything about it. And so let's talk about the past and the future of the Republican Party. There is no opposition to the Great Awakening for the very simple reason that opposition isn't really profitable or plausible. A lot of the people who are advertising principles, a lot of the people who have principles, are essentially saying, I'm just this one guy. Now, I have an influence or money or leisure that most Americans can't dream of, but I'm actually just one guy, and I'm looking at an America that's defined by liberal elites. And they're in Silicon Valley and not just in Hollywood, and they are in the legal arena, not just in Washington, D.C. They're everywhere. Actually, they run things, and the young are super woke. So game over conservatism, I'm just going to do what I can for me, and that's it. It is a change that's happening, it is structural, if you will, systemic, so there's nothing I can do about it. This feeling of weakness requires a bit of rhetoric to massage, to conceal the defeat, but everybody understands that this version of the Republican Party has already said we are defeated. Whatever dreams those other people had in 1980, they have turned out to be lies. Or at any rate, we failed. All we can do now is maintain the lies because it's comfortable and less humiliating. And that's it. And it does not matter what is going to happen to everybody else. And especially, it doesn't matter what's going to happen to the next generation. This is a Republican Party that has committed suicide. It's not attempting it or threatening it. It's already done. There is never going to be any relationship between this Republican Party and the next generation of voters. It's just not going to happen. And that brings us to what you were saying about the Great Awakening. The most interesting sociological fact about America is that all the young activism is on the fascist left, on the we will burn things in the streets, we will be beating people within inches of their life and see if we can murder them. It's fun. Those people are the youth of America is presented on TV, just like woke symbols are America is presented in the advertising that social media does at the behest of the woke and of oligarchs in technology. But young America as a whole, online, not to say very online America, is far less left liberal or woke than all the institutions of power. Far less so than television, far less so than, you know, Hollywood. Indeed, the woke are an answer to a problem. On Facebook, it turns out that you'll hear from a lot of angry Republicans. On Facebook, it'll be old people. On Twitter, younger people. You'll hear from a lot of people you've never had to hear from before and whom you want silenced. The woke mobs are the instrument of this silencing, and they themselves get a chance to have a kind of future influence, a kind of future power, by providing for censorship, for people canceling. <laughs> You know, you can't fact check, that's what the institutions of the mainstream media try to do, but you can check people instead. Indeed, you can cancel them wholesale. And that's very important because, as I said, social media is far less liberal than all the media we had before. So that's a problem for liberals that they have to deal with. And the wokies are the people who can deal with it by destroying anybody, good, bad, or indifferent, who speaks to the non-liberals. If you can destroy those few people who rear their heads, who attain some celebrity, who have a bit of influence, then liberals can get back to having control of the media in America and therefore the democracy show as opposed to the real democracy. Well, there's also the problem with young people is that if you're not a left-wing young person, there's no politics for you. And because the Republican Party is a competition between various kinds of politics for old people. Donald Trump is reflecting of one kind of nostalgia. We can bring back the industrial economy of the 1960s. Something, you know, we can make America great again. 
And, you know, the other conventional Republicans are, we'll make America 1984 again. And the thing is, if you're a young person, you never experienced either of those things. A lot of what you hear about it is bad, some of it's good, but none of it is speaking for you. I mean, look at me, I was born almost simultaneously with the end of the Vietnam War. But when I was a kid, the Vietnam War might as well have happened 200 years ago for all the different. You know, I was following public affairs as like a teenager and everyone's talking about the Vietnam War. And I'm like, so much has happened. Why don't you shut up about the Vietnam War already? It's a different situation. Not everything is Vietnam. Well, the Republican Party is like that now, only we want to reenact 1980. And having been through the 80s, I can see, well, no, we can't come back to that for all kinds of reasons. But for somebody who's younger, that just must sound completely insane. People are talking references that make no sense, statements that have nothing to do with your life, answers to questions you're not asking, completely ignoring you and your own life. One of the things that struck me about the 2016 election was the complete absence of any enthusiasm among non-religious young voters for Ted Cruz. There were some younger people who were openly for Donald Trump, even though there were severe social sanctions for being openly Donald Trump. The sanctions for being for Ted Cruz weren't that severe because, you know, those people didn't really work up a whole lot of enthusiasm for it. But there was no Ted Cruz because when Ted Cruz spoke, he might as well have been speaking Martian. Like he would open up his speeches with biblical verses that these kids didn't get because they weren't going to church. And then he would talk about these, you know, we're going to have a flat tax and we're going to cut the government and we're going to balance the budget. And they're like, what does any of this have to do with my life? When Donald Trump spoke, you could be like, all right, I like it or I hate it. Some of them liked it and more of them hated it, but they had an opinion about it. When Ted Cruz spoke, it was just complete incomprehension. He had nothing to say to him. So you have a party that, you know, on the one hand, seems to be rebuilding a world that you never experienced, don't necessarily want to go back to. And you have another part of the party that makes no sense whatsoever. On top of that, you have a party with no experience of successful governing at the federal level. The younger among them might remember George W. Bush. Yeah, that went well. And now they remember Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, he had a Goldilocks economy until the pandemic hit, but he screwed up virtually everything since. So if you think of a moderate or conservative young person, what do Republicans offer for you? They don't even try to offer you anything. They don't even try to imagine the world that you grew up in, or what your struggles are, or how you might form a family, or how you might get steady employment, or how you might navigate the job market that exists in your world, or how can you build a family in which your kids might thrive? How do you get married? Do you get married? Under what conditions do you get married? Uh, how do you find a home? None of these questions even register the vast majority of Republican politicians. And they're like, well, these kids just don't like us. Well, of course they don't like you. You obviously don't give a goddamn about them or what happens to them. You're caught in your own fantasy world and you're catering to an older audience because it's easier. And you kind of understand what your older audience wants because you experience some of the same things, but you could not care less what these younger people were because you're not even trying to think about it. And once again, it's even the young Republicans, there's a reason why Bernie Sanders does well with younger people than these guys do, because Cruz and Rubio are an old man's idea of what a young Republican should be. Their job is to tell old people that this is the future of America and the future of America is, well, the past of America, your past. Whereas Bernie Sanders would say, hey, you have these problems. These are the solutions. I think you're right. Health insurance is a problem. This is going to be a solution. Now, student debt's a problem. You might not like your solutions, but at least he's addressing your problems. Whereas Republicans are like, yeah, we're going to have a flat tax. What? I mean, even if you don't necessarily understand how the flat tax is going to help or hurt various people directly, you can look at it and go, this person's not answering the question that I'm asking. It's like, oh, do you have Coke? And the person says, uh, shoes. It's like, they're not even listening to you. You're right. The difference between generations, between Fox News and talk radio on the one hand, and on the other hand, Twitter, is the difference between the past and the future of the Republican Party. And it's obvious that this very place where political rhetoric is most important, how do you talk to a new generation of voters? People change. Everything that you were used to, stuff that you already have politicians for. Well, the old people know who their representative is. They voted for that person likely 10 times or what have you. That's incumbency. There are many partisan advantages to this system, and primarily it means steady voters and steady politicians know each other. Well, what happens when a generation changes? What happens when political circumstances change in a significant way? Then you need to learn about new voters, and you need to teach those new voters that you are the party that will deal with their problems. And that means indeed learning what those problems are for those people, not what the problems of their parents or grandparents are. And that is not happening. 
it is so brutally obvious because the difference between Fox News and Twitter is so brutally obvious. The technological differences that often mean the difference between generations in America. Those things are so obvious and yet go unaddressed because, as we said, instead of having politicians, we have rhetoricians. But these rhetoricians are the old people's idea of what young people should be. And therefore, they are fit only to speak to old people. They're all handsome men who are very presentable, have good families, they look good on TV, they sound presidential, and old people like them. Fine, like them. You know, most of the conservatives of a certain age I know like Ben Sassy, who is a clown, but in the Senate. And some of them are worse in certain ways. But none of these politicians are at all capable of doing politics, which means figuring out what is the future of the party? Where do they get a chance to have a career? Their idea of a career is to be the perpetual minority and cater to dying voters without ever wondering. I mean, what if these voters care about their kids also? What if these voters care about the future of their country and that their ideas should have a continuity and a certain legacy? Well, nobody gives a damn about that. That would require forming a majority coalition. That would require finding new voters. And that's simply not on the agenda. We have come to a point where the people who fight the culture war are themselves insanely nostalgic, lost in the past, living in a haze of Fox News. They are, if anything, more incapable than other Republicans of understanding that there are voters under the age of 40, that there is a future, a next generation that's already happening, and it might decide the next election, just like young people decided the election of 2008. It's something that serious people should be worried about and that we have real experience of. But it's simply not an available concern to people who have any kind of influence or the confidence of their numbers, thinking that we are the electorate of the GOP, we are the audience of Fox News, and we don't need to learn anything. We don't need to care about how come we're sustaining all these defeats while keeping up our levels of apoplectic anger. That's going to surely kill the, 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 the standing of the party just as much as elites who are actually in bed with every other oligarchic institution in America and they don't want to win very much at all. They would have liked to win, but not if winning meant catering to their electorate. So now it is more obvious than it's been in a long time that the future of democracy will be tied up with the internet. It will be tied up with whether your rights to property, i.e. can you have a job, are you employable, for example, and your rights to security of person and your right to free speech as well. That will depend on whether you are banned or not. That will depend on whether you have any freedom left or your constitutional rights have been abolished. All of these democratic problems that require both rhetoric and serious political action, from the courts to just getting millions of people to scream about things at the representatives to get Congress to do stuff, and so on and so forth, all of these things require politics and they require rhetoric and they require a new generation of politicians, a new elite that looks for a new class of voters, for people to shore up numbers to a majority. The basic lesson of politics that you need to learn from rhetoric is what can you offer people that they want and they find plausible coming from you so that they'll vote for you again and again. And you can't tell people they should like something that they don't like. That's not going to happen. What you can do is you can show people they have connections with each other that they didn't really know they had. You can show like a non-voting African-American moderate that they have something in common with a secular white working class voter in Pennsylvania. They have common interests and they have common problems and these problems have common solutions. But at that point, you have to understand their problems and their solutions. That can be done. It's hard work and most Republican politicians don't want to do that work, but it can be done. And it's done for marginal benefits because you're not going to get 50% of the African-American vote. You're not going to get 40% of the African-American vote. You might get 15 or 16. But the thing is, at that point, you actually have to give people offers and you have to show them, listen, you have this problem. We have better solutions. And the solutions can't be, well, we're going to cut the taxes on your boss because neither that voter nor that working class, white, secular, rural, Russell voter want to hear that. So you have to work from where those people are, but you have to figure out what they have in common and try to build those connections. You have to imagine that the bridge between that marginal African-American voter and that secular working class white voter, you find where they're close and build that bridge between them, as opposed to just saying, we're going to build bridges around them. And there's a super long bridge is going to connect to 1980 on both sides. That's not going to happen. But you did bring out something, people wanting power entirely on their own terms, which is something that protest politicians do. Ron Paul does it. I mean, what did Ross Delta call Ron Paul? He called no compromise with the electorate. It's actually not exactly true. Ron Paul, who ran for president, said that we were right to get involved in World War II. I don't believe for a second that the private Ron Paul believes that. So I mean, what you're seeing in the public Ron Paul is a, actually like a toned down version of the real Ron Paul. 
which is bad enough. But wanting power on your own terms entirely is interesting. And once again, I respect it in Jeb Bush. I don't respect it in political consultants whose job it is to help people win. If you wanted power on your own terms, you should seek power as opposed to being an assistant, which brings me to like the Lincoln Project, which I think is an interesting development where you have these washed up Republican consultants who have now become, you might say, democratic political activists, but they're not really democratic political activists. They're democratic entertainers. Their job is not to win elections. I mean, let me let me give you an example. Who are the campaign managers for Joe Biden? I follow politics very closely. I can't tell you who they are. Now, do these people not have influence? Yeah, they have huge influence. Their candidate has mushroom brains. So these people are extremely important political figures, but they're not advertising themselves publicly because they're not in the entertainment business. They're in the winning business. Whereas these Republican consultants who formed the Lincoln Project, they haven't been in the winning business for a while. They're not in the winning business now, and they weren't even really in the winning business towards the end of their run as Republican political consultants. It's a significant cultural change because the Republican Party led the consultant-led revolution in the 70s and 80s, where politics shifted from people who were on the ground, labor leaders, party committeemen, to people who were basically ad execs only for television. They were about 10 or 15 years ahead of the Democrats in terms of political consulting skill. And these people were openly mercenary and they were openly contemptuous of the voters in general. In other words, they didn't necessarily like Republican voters. They didn't necessarily like Democratic voters. They were about manipulating these voters to get to doing what they wanted. Now, there's definite downsides to this because politics is about things. But the politicians were about things. These people were technicians and they were about winning. And they were about seeing clearly, at least in their corner of the world, because once again, winning isn't everything, but it was their job. The other parts were somebody else's job. And there emerged a class of Republican consultants from the mid-90s onwards. Winning was secondary to being liked, who despised their own voters, whereas the old Republican politicians despised all voters. They despised their voters specifically and wanted to be liked by the elites of the other party. And they developed an escape hatch where if they failed as Republican consultants, they could find a secondary career as liberal entertainers, whose job it was to tell audiences of liberals that Republicans are racist. So work for Republican politicians, and if you go on a losing streak, you simply leave being a Republican consultant, now you get a job at MSNBC, or you find liberal donors, and you work for them. But the point isn't to convince, the point is to get paid. And its contempt now took a different form. Whereas the old Republican consultants wanted to win and were willing to win by saying very mean things or very dishonest things, their current goal is respectability among a certain class of elites. One of the reasons I find the Lincoln Project interesting, it shows a evolution of the consultant class. It shows why it became so politically futile. These people are anti-Trump, but they're actually a big part of the reason why Trump became the Republican nominee. But the performance of naivete and the performance of moralism is genuinely disgusting where you have people who came up in a business where cynicism was the rule, where having a low opinion of the voters was the baseline. And now they say, well, I never knew. I never guessed that my voters were like that. Well, doesn't that just make you the dumbest, most incompetent person in the world? I don't mean consultant. I mean as a human being. If you are saying that you're a Republican consultant and your whole job was to understand your voters, and you're saying that they were toothless racists all along and you just didn't know it, well, then you should be in an assisted living facility. You shouldn't be telling people how to vote. You should be having your mush, and you should shut, shut up. But they're lying. And also the performance of moralism, where now they're about, you know, what's good for America. Whereas actually their job is to be political entertainers, and they're extremely constrained about what they can say because they're on probation. They have less space to tell the Democrats are wrong than Democratic politicians do, because at least you count Democratic politicians are on your side. These people are working for an audience of donors and entertainers, and their job is to dance when people throw peanuts at them. And the thing is, if they don't dance, people don't throw peanuts at them. And it's not like they have any other job. So you have people who epitomize the weaknesses of the Republican Party that allow Trump to take power, criticizing the party that they helped screw up. And they're doing it in bad faith in order to avoid having to work for a living. Yeah, I think you're right. You can see at this point a lot of the elites of the Republican Party moving into the Democrat Party, indeed back 
to the Democrat Party and trying to plump for Biden, trying to say that Donald Trump is the excuse that justifies switching parties, switching allegiances, making all these revelatory discoveries that are going to lead to soul-searching and new departures. And indeed, it's also transparently stupid that you also get a sense that there's a lot of insanity going on. These people have all made their peace with the fact that nothing in politics is real. The cynics, as you say, are all turning into blushing nuns. The most corrupt part of politics suddenly is calling itself Lincoln. They are martyrs for America, Pete. Wow, these are all important moral people. But they're just memes. There's no longer any difference between these people and frog Twitter or rose Twitter, i.e. weirdo supporters of Trump from the right or weirdo supporters of communism and Bernie bros from the left. There's no longer any difference. You just have to make up this fantasy and see if it profits you anything. And if people who are more serious find you useful to some extent, then you'll be useful, but you know, within certain boundaries. So I just saw something somewhat related, the never Trump bulwark, the bulwark of conservatism, another one of these nonsense notions. Some lady who runs it or is an editor was being humiliated by Soledad O'Brien on Twitter in this completely crazy way. The bulwark person was talking about how Biden's speech at the DNC is in some sense small c conservative because of all the values, you know, the values. And Soledad O'Brien was saying, how crazy are you to say that these values are conservative in any sense? There you see how real liberals put in their place these never Trump Biden Democrats to fight over the hierarchy of who gets how much attention and respectability in the Twitter journalistic economy of attention. That's the reality now, that Lincoln Project and the Bulwark and so many other people, these are now the bottom feeders of the elite system of the Democrat Party. In short, they have decided to live down to the ugliest accusations populists always lob at the elites of the Republican Party, that you're just playing junior team to the Democrats, you're just liberals with other insignia, you're rhinos, Republicans in name only, and now not even in name. And it turns out they were right all along. That's a depressive and very funny thing at the same time. These are political pros who are following the Krasenstein brother business model. Now, the Krasenstein brothers were resistance grifters. These two guys, they were facilitators of pyramid schemes. The government shut them down, and then they started running Bieber fan accounts and try to monetize those. And then when Donald Trump became president, their shtick was when Donald Trump tweeted, they would just go in and try to get the first comment in, criticizing Donald Trump, so that they would get attention. But the point of the Krasenstein brothers isn't that they're liberals, it's that they're manipulating, they're exploiting gullible, angry liberals. And what the Lincoln Project does is it's the exact same thing. I have no problem with liberals criticizing the Lincoln Project because they're basically right. They're an entertainment venture, not a political venture. Like the idea that these guys were always liberals, I, I don't think in the privacy of their own hearts, they might be a little more center left than center right. But they're not doing this because they're a little more center left than center right. It's because they're in the business of entertaining people for money because they can no longer be in the business of running campaigns for money. Now, the genesis of this was in the aftermath of the 2008 presidential campaign, where McCain advisors like Nicole Wallace and Stephen Schmidt, they were horrified. I don't think they were horrified at the thought that they were never going to get a job. They were horrified that they were going to go down in history as modern Bull Connors. Because before Lehman Brothers fell, the McCain campaign was leaning really heavily into a culture war argument against Barack Obama. Sarah Palin's speech was rural identity politics. You know, we have real things. We expect real results in these small towns. And then, I mean, like, the campaign was, like, criticizing Obama for liking arugula or something. Ross Delth had called it, in this week's New York Times column, culture war without issues. Well, the McCain campaign was all about culture war without issues until Lehman Brothers fell. So what Stephen Schmidt and Nicole Wallace did was they didn't want to get blamed for this. So they became sources for game changes, book about the McCain campaign, and they offloaded as much of this blame as possible onto Sarah Palin. She was the reason we were going to do this. She's ignorant. She represents these terrible Republicans. They wanted a scapegoat so that they would not get blamed for the campaign that they wanted. Because let's face it, I mean, Sarah Palin had been in federal politics for like five days when she gave the speech. She didn't come up with the McCain campaign strategies. The staffers did. But they didn't want the blame for it. And they got a lot of positive liberal attention. I think that was the extent of their ambitions. But it turned out there's money to be made in going on Morning Joe and continuing to call Republicans racist. 
And that's what they did. I mean, basically, they transitioned from Republican staffers to liberal entertainers. And, you know, McCain hated them, supposedly. I mean, they were banned from McCain's funeral. Politicians who had criticized McCain were allowed at the funeral, but these scumbags were not, because the McCain campaign understood that by saying that the McCain campaign was racist, but not them, they were saying the same thing about McCain, too. But what happened was after Donald Trump, a lot of other washed up Republican consultants are now following the same path. Rick Wilson, Weaver, Stuart Stevens. They could no longer get work. And also the techniques and arguments that these people were using stopped working. In 2012, Karl Rove got $300 million to help Republican Senate candidates and Mitt Romney, and he wasted that money. Not just that the Republicans didn't win, but $300 million to no benefit that anybody could see. Then you had you know Mike Murphy in 2016 with $100 million to help Jeb Bush. And for $100 million, he actually produced some benefit. Like Marco Rubio finished fifth in New Hampshire instead of finishing third. And that's what $100 million bought you. But at that point, you know, Carl Rove and Mike Murphy were discredited. And Rick Wilson, he was a Rubio guy, and Rubio crashed and burned. They were going to have trouble finding other work. So what they did was all these guys transitioned to becoming, you know, the Lincoln Project. But what they're doing is they're manipulating gullible voters. Weaver actually said, you know, one of the arguments of the Lincoln Project is, you know, Trump's uniquely bad. But Weaver says, yeah, after Biden wins, we're going to help enact Biden's agenda. Because they don't want the money to stop. I mean, if you're just about stopping Trump when Trump is stopped, then why would we keep giving you money? So they want to continue. But my point is that Nicole Wallace going on MSNBC isn't convincing anybody to vote Democratic. Her job is to reassure Democratic voters that they're good, but she's also dispensable. If she doesn't want to do it, somebody else will show up and do it. And, you know, we talked about that bulwark staffer who was being dragged on social media. I mean, she is dependent on liberals and she's not dependent on liberals because she wants people convinced. She's dependent on liberals because they operate a quote bank for liberals. Once again, all the Lincoln people have the same first name, even even Mike Murphy, even Stuart Stevens, even William Crystal. They're all saying you should vote Democrat. They've given up their individual identities so that they can be entertainers and reassurers for liberals. It's an interesting development, but also at the same time, people saying it's not important. It is important. The corruption of the consultant class is important. The incompetence of the Republican consultant class is important. The openness in which some elements of the consultant class despise their own party and run away from it and condemn it the first time that they are balked is important. The absence of quality control within the consultant class is important. You know, is the Lincoln Project important? It's up, it's not, the election is not going to be won based on the Lincoln Project, but it's a symptom of important developments within the body politic. Yeah, I agree. And I would add that just as there are bottom feeders in this, there are also people who were at least once considered very respectable, like all those hundreds of people involved in the ad in the Wall Street Journal that says we are all bigwigs in national security. We are the good workers of the Republican parties for decades and we are against Donald Trump. I don't know most of the people on that list. They seem like nobodies to me. But, you know, a big ad with hundreds of names in national security bureaucracies in the Wall Street Journal is more important in uh, revealing the truth about Washington elites. One of them is Elliot Cohen. You may remember from the early Trump days, he was the guy who said that he will not serve in the administration and he doesn't want other people to serve either, which is, you know, one of the weird parts about the Republican position. Once Trump became president, you would have thought that everybody would have helped moderate him in whatever way is reasonable. But in fact, it turned out that what we see now, an administration that can't be staffed, people won't work for him. I mean, not working for Donald Trump, not a crime. It's obvious. But taking out that ad again reveals that these people have no problem betraying their party. There were Republicans when they ran their party, or it was run by people they were pleased to serve. They were not going to stick with the Republican Party the moment things shifted. Of course, you'd think these are all the people claiming responsibility for the foreign policy catastrophes of the last 20 years. How dare these shameless people? I'm not going to start throwing invectives at them, but these are people who have deserved invectives of their country if anybody is ever responsible for political activity. They are still claiming the expertise on the basis of which the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, Libya, all of these things happened. But these people are part of the Republican elite of Washington, D.C., and they're more important than the bottom feeders. And nevertheless, they are in the exact same way, shamelessly willing to abandon their party and to support politically the opposition. And to do it in the name of principle, supposedly, and to suggest that really the opinions of the majority of the American people do not deserve representation. They were there in the Republican Party to make sure that the electorate of the Republican Party never gets their way. They were not there to represent the people, to refine and enlarge the public views or any of that stuff. 
They were there to make sure that if elites want to fight another war, it's going to be great. Other people do the fighting and there's so much money in warfare. So you can spend trillions of dollars and nobody asks questions. You know, it's welfare for Republicans. Those people are the corruption in evidence. They are not merely a symptom. They were the work of that corruption. And they do it because it's respectable. They were not people that could ever be held accountable. They are people who can only be humiliated in a certain way. The fact that the Republican electorate in America elected Donald Trump is a slap in the face to all these people. And lots of them are willing to say so, to react to it. They don't even know enough to hide it. Pretend that nothing's happening and they're just going on with life, although it's a catastrophe. None of that. They are openly against their party and supporting the opposition. I don't have anything against anybody's right to switch parties or to have different political opinions. It's a free country, but it reveals the deep corruption of the party. They were never willing to represent the views of the Republican electorate or of the American majority. As a matter of fact, America did well without invading Middle Eastern countries for most of its history, and I believe it will return to that very good tradition. There's no need to get all those people killed or destroyed or spend all that money or get soldiers killed. In fact, we're better off without it. We were better off before it happened. What we see from bottom feeders to very respectable elites, from the people who were advertising their cynicism to the people who were advertising their decades of dutiful service to their country, is that the old political rhetoric for a generation covered up a situation where the elites had nothing but contempt for their electorate. These are not bad and vicious people exactly. I mean, the bottom feeders are vicious people in an obvious way, profiteers. But, you know, these are not the larger-than-life criminals. These are not a conspiracy of evildoers doing terrible, terrible things like the conspiracy theorists believe. Indeed, the conspiracy theorists are naive. They think evil is this sort of ostentatious exploitation horrifying orgies. I'm sure there's some evil. Everybody was mixed up with Jeffrey Epstein at some level. Probably there was real evil involved there and the sort of stuff that we used to execute people for when it was proved against them in a court of law and the jury of their peers decided that you don't get a second chance. But that's not the character of the corruption we're dealing with. These are people who are corrupt, first of all, because of their stupidity. And their stupidity has a political character. They have not gone to see the electorate. They do not care about the electorate. They do not know how to learn about the electorate or even that they should. They believe in the power of the institutions they influenced or simply led. And they never cared whether those institutions have to do the good of the people or not. Consent of the government was never interesting to them. Rhetoric was supposed to fix the consent problem by faking it. And it didn't matter how fake the consent was because everybody understood the American people or the party electorate was never going to rebel against them. Never mind things like the Buchanan campaign or H. Ross Perot. You just get a George W. Bush and he'll have a folksy touch. It doesn't matter what other people think. Don't ask about that. But the revolution came in the party and they were all thrown out and it turned out they were all impotent that they were so stupid that they could not control even their own party, that the elites of the Republican Party had corrupted their own party until the moment that they were easily thrown off. There was not a struggle in the Republican Party. Trump did not come with the power of philosophic depth and the ruthlessness of a conqueror. The rhetoric sufficed because all the real things had been destroyed in advance. Every bad thing that Trump had to say about other Republicans was even truer than he could have possibly known. And the electorate shifted allegiances because the electorate was sick of being betrayed. This does not make the electorate good or perfect. It just makes the electorate the electorate. They get to vote. That's perhaps the closing lesson about the relationship between politics and rhetoric. For too long, elites used rhetoric as a series of lies about politics and America, behind which they used the institutional powers they had, and with no thought about the consequences. These people are not primarily morally evil, but intellectually evil. They are stupid, incompetent, careless, lazy. They are not the kinds of people who worry, worry, worry how to get things right. And that is why they were destroyed by Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't have many virtues to boast of, but these people had all these intellectual vices and had betrayed the electorate for so long that they were doomed. But they are who and what educated the current elite of the Republican Party, who decided which 50, 40, 30-year-olds get influence offices. Those opinions of DC Republicans created the Marco Rubios of the world and so forth. Now, I'm a big believer in America, so I like to think that maybe Marco Rubio will go back to his family, to his Catholic faith, and think, don't be a corrupt son of a bitch. You don't have to keep playing for those elites in Washington. You can play for your electorate now. Hopefully, that's how these things turn out.
But there's a very good reason to worry that people will not learn the most obvious lessons about the overthrow of the DC GOP in 2016. They will not learn what the power of the truth in the rhetoric of Donald Trump was. That he really wasn't lying about how corrupt these people are, about the problems with foreign policy or the problem with domestic policy or the problem with poor people in America. He was just the first guy willing to tell the truth about these things. And the fact that he's a flimflam man doesn't change that because all the other people were worse. They had all signed up for duty and service and privileges and betrayed their electorate and the country. Not by any terrible evil act, not by selling America to the Russians or the Chinese or whoever. Nothing so dramatic. Simply by not doing their job. They thought that elite power, institutional power that is, is just there for the taking. It's not there to be used to keep the country healthy and going. You're in office, that's about you. Whether this can change, we will find out. Whether rhetoric can inspire people to say, actually I do care about America, I care about my way of life and other people will. And I've seen what happens, I've seen the corruption and I've seen how screwed up it is, we can do better. You know, on Twitter, I'll say, you know, there's a good chance that after Trump, the Republican Party will try to revert back to what it was before. And the answer is, well, Jeb Bush isn't coming back. Well, that's true. Jeb Bush isn't coming back. But the Lincoln Project and its allies represent people within the establishment who had the least impulse control or who were the most willing to engage in the short con. In other words, money now in exchange for power ever. Most of the Republican establishment that was fine with George Bush and would have been fine with Jeb Bush stayed with Donald Trump. They're still within the party. They're smarter than Rick Wilson, than most guys at the bulwark. JVL is actually really smart at the bulwark. But they're still in the party, and most of them haven't changed. They've said the things they need to say to stay on Donald Trump's good side, waiting for the day, whether it's 2020 or 2024, when Donald Trump's not there anymore. And you can go back to having the party be what it was before. That describes most Republican senators. It describes most Republican members of the House of Reps. It describes most Republican governors. They would be quite happy to go back to the Republican Party was if Donald Trump had been run over by a bus sometime in 2013. You know, Ross wrote a really good column the other day. What are the three paths? You know, one, a genuinely productive populism that Donald Trump could not produce. Secondly, continued leveraging of anti-majority institutions for a zombie Republican agenda. And the third one was fantasy victories, where instead of actually doing anything for your voters, what you do is you spin fantasies about, you know, how Hillary Clinton has actually been secretly arrested by Robert Mueller. And what you're seeing at the Democratic Convention is actually a body double. But the big risk, I think, is a combination of two and three. And there was a graphic going around about the primetime speaker list at the Republican Convention. It was on Fox News. It was half the people were Trump family members. So it was six Trumps and six Republican politicians who are basically just like pre-Trump Republican politicians. But that pointed towards where the Republican Party goes. And it's going to be like the Lincoln Project where the Republican Party says, yeah, Trump sucked and all Trump voters suck. And hey, Trump voters vote for us now. It's not a realistic strategy. What is a realistic strategy? A synthesis between the Republican establishment and the Trump family mafia, where the Trump family gets respect in place and the Republican elites get the policies they want. Where, in other words, if you're Donald Trump, if you have a choice in 2024 between a Republican candidate who says, you know, Trump was right about the populism, but he was a bad president and these are the good populist things. And you have a Republican establishment candidate who says Donald Trump was awesome. We love Donald Trump. That's why we need zombie Reaganism, even though it's incoherent at the level of policy. In terms of which candidate now serves Donald Trump's narcissism, the populist who's willing to criticize Donald Trump or the establishment figure who wants establishment things, who is abasing them before Donald Trump. So you can kind of see a future Republican synthesis where Trumpy Republican voters get fake victories. And Republican elites seek to leverage anti-majority institutions to get the policies they want. On Twitter, I called it, you know, high earner tax breaks for some fake secret arrests of celebrities for others. And you have like this idea that QAnon and the Republican establishment represent different polls is not necessarily the case. You can actually see where there will be a synthesis between oppositional Republican politics and establishment Republican politics because Donald Trump's own narcissism can form a bridge between these two factions. So the same thing with Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions was attorney general. In terms of which candidate is closer to Donald Trump's politics, Jeff Sessions was closer, but Donald Trump hated Jeff Sessions, so he supported Tommy Tuberville, and Tommy Tuberville prevailed. So you can see the future of the Republican Party. You know, Tommy Tuberville, he's a mushhead. He'll do whatever Republican lobbyists tell him to do. 
But you can see where the synthesis might emerge between the Trump family mafia, who, whatever Trump's personal preferences, what they want is prestige. And you have a Republican establishment that would gladly trade that status, the policies that they've always wanted along. This is the real risk. It's a worst of all worlds. The dumbest parts of Trumpism plus the dumbest parts of zombie Reaganism can now actually form a new synthesis within the party. I think you're exactly right. And this is the primary temptation. Elites do not want to deal with the rhetoric problem because that's a problem that belongs to the people. That's why you hire help. That's why you get grifters. That's why you get crazy people. That's why you get bottom feeders. That's why you get anybody who can get you the numbers, the entertainment you want, who can pacify the people while letting you exercise the power because they're too incompetent and narrow-minded to even think of getting power themselves. Therefore, the separation of rhetoric and politics will make for an America where decisions are brokered between parts of the elites according to where the numbers point or who's more confident or what money is more effective in any particular policy issue. And the people are reduced to despair and indeed to debasement by conspiracy theorists, by entertainment, by all the hysteria we see online. This is not a republic if things go that way. The alternative would be for the Americans to mind their business instead, to not leave things up to lunatics and damaged goods. It would be useful for people to learn what it means to make your peace with America being a country with people in it whose opinions are very important and who you have to leave with their consent. And therefore to put the policy and the rhetoric together, not to use the rhetoric to lie to people systematically or haphazardly about what policy is actually happening, not to try to get people hooked on fantasies or humiliated into despair until they stopped fighting back. There are temptations on both left and the right at the elite level to dispense with the people. That's always going to be a problem when you have elites that have so much institutional power and absolutely no accountability to speak of. This is why, although we have a kind of populism problem that shows up on social media where there's hate everywhere, the populism problem isn't the real problem we have. The hate we see among populists who have realized that the rhetoric is all lies is there because they sense their own impotence, because there's nothing you can do. This is a dangerous situation for that reason. It is harder and harder to tell people to be hopeful in any reasonable way. Change also holds out some opportunities. The old elites are obviously people who have outlived their reputation, as I was saying in the beginning. They're not powerful anymore, and it's not clear who will replace them. Silicon Valley elites don't have the ambition and the skills required. It is a time for new political elites, for somebody who actually cares about what happens to most Americans most of the time. Doing it, however, seems so hard. Starting anything, achieving anything seems so hard, which is why people are tempted by anything from entertainment grifts to conspiracy theory, because those things are instant gratification and they don't require any hard effort. They don't require you to ask yourself, am I really willing to invest into something that will take years to achieve anything and it's risky? Well, also, it's not the job of most people to produce answers to these questions. These answers do have to arise from elites, whether actually accredited elites or self-selected elites. I mean, you have a real problem of you know, America's HR departments and the tech oligarchs and the payment processors choking off public debate. It's not the job of some dude in Michigan or California or Wyoming or Georgia to solve that problem. That's a problem for people who have been trained in political science or, or law or public policy. And if elites don't offer that solution, that solution's not going to come. That's what you get QAnon, where you have people, since you can't actually win real world victories, you win fantasy world victories, where, you know, we're going to be the storm. All these celebrities are going to be arrested because they're cannibal serial killers. Well, that's what you get when the people who are in charge aren't offering answers. And those people include, you know, Donald Trump, who's, let's get he said a flim flam man. He doesn't have the answers, but he understood some of the questions that people were asking. But somebody within the think tank world, office holder world or the aspirant office holder world, people with grad degrees, people with experience of holding public office have to be able to say, these are the problems, these are the solutions, as opposed to saying, these are the problems, let's be mad about the problems. Like Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity's job is to channel people's frustrations into answers people don't want. And one of the reasons why Tucker Carlson sparkles, I mean, there's a lot of things to not like about Tucker Carlson. I don't want Tucker Carlson to be president. If you give me 15 minutes, I could find you 15 minutes worth of material about why I don't like a lot of the stuff that Tucker Carlson says. But what he says is these problems are real right now. Complaining is not enough. We should be expecting government officials to be doing things, and they are not. And this is a problem. I mean, what Tucker Carlson has managed to do is sharply, usually implicitly, he doesn't usually criticize Trump by name, but sometimes he does, without at the same time condemning Trump voters, where basically he says, if you had right-wing rioters burning down buildings, Obama would do something about it, as he should. 
you have left-wing rioters burning down buildings. Trump can't because he's a clown. He ran for president to be the loudest drunk at the bar. So he can say those things. And there's a reason why he's getting better ratings, because a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump think Donald Trump is a lesser evil, recognize that there is a vacuum there. It's not being filled either by conventional Republican politicians or Donald Trump. And they want answers, where Sean Hannity is just, yeah, there's rioting. Rioting is bad. Vote for the normal Republican politician who will do the normal Republican things and won't address these problems. But, you know, channel negative partisanship into an agenda you don't even want. Where, you know, Tucker Carlson doesn't have a policy agenda. He's not a details guy. He's the first guy to tell you that he doesn't have the answers in terms of a white paper. But he's actually saying that if people have a problem with A, you don't solve problem A by trying to solve problem B. You solve problem A. You take people's problems seriously and you try to solve them instead of what Nikki Haley does. You know, there was deplatforming by the tech oligarchs. Nikki Haley sent out a tweet saying, well, they shouldn't have done it, but they have a right to do it. So I understand what you're feeling, but, you know, there's nothing I'm going to do about it. Okay, well, what she's saying is that she wants people's votes based on the problems that they have, but she wants to ignore those problems in order to do the kinds of things they don't want her to do. They don't want her to cut the taxes on their boss. And one of the reasons she's going to fail as the Republican establishment candidate is because she's too obvious about it. Nikki Haley's whole shtick is, we're going to channel these cultural resentments, we're going to channel these fears of a managed democracy, and then leave this managed democracy in place. Because, you know, our ideology doesn't let us do anything about it, and besides, I don't really give a damn about you. Tim Scott, who's a much smoother operator, and who doesn't radiate contempt for his voters in the same way that she does, he's more likely to become like the zombie Reagan candidate than she is is just channeling legitimate fears of managed democracy, but also neutralizing them so that they never actually find political representation. So these questions never find answers. Where Tucker Carlson's like, this isn't going to work anymore. Somebody has to be able to do something. We expect things. And if we don't get these things, that's a problem. And in some ways, that's hopeful. You know, you actually developed a critique of the impotence of Trumpism and the establishment that doesn't condemn those voters. Yeah, this is the beginning for things. You have to be for the voters. You have to be for the majority and figure out what is the problem that's really making them mad. What can be done about it in the real world? Not in the world of words and images online, not in the world of HR departments. In the real world, how could you solve these people's problems? Not get rid of the people, get rid of the problems. And indeed, you want a populism that is principled. That is to say that things that the majority of Americans are not bad people. And therefore, it's not okay to be doing catastrophic things to them or to neglect their misery. It's strange to think of populism as principled, first of all, because populism is a lot of angry people shouting. But those people are not shouting for no reason. That is the moral core of America. You have to persuade the majority that life is bearable. And then when they live it, they have to decide whether they believe things are really getting better and therefore will vote again two years and four years hence. That's how politics is in contact with reality. And that has been lost. And there is no part of the old elite consensus that works. Not the consultants, not the politicians at the top, like presidents, former presidents like George Bush or wannabes like Mitt Romney. Really, as you were saying, not most of the DC GOP in either house. But of course, you also have to be realistic and admit that you can't get rid of the elites. So you have to change these people's minds by pointing them again to the people. Popular anger and the need to get the votes of the people for people who have any political ambition, those are the negative and the positive inducements. You have to want the approval of the people and to get things done for that. And you have to really hate the people who are trying to destroy what's left of the civil peace of America, what's left of tranquility, what's left of people's security of person and of property and of free speech. That anger and that desire to help people are the two things that are most obvious in American political rhetoric. That's why there's always a coalition mounting against Washington, D.C. ever since Jefferson and Jackson and Lincoln did. These are useful lessons to learn, and indeed, in his early books, Peter Lawler worked a lot on American political rhetoric and American political experiment, very aware of how tenuous it was, how America constantly gets into a crisis, but America also gets through crisis well enough. And so there is a certain reason to hope if you look back and you realize America has been through tough stuff, and it sometimes gets done surprisingly well when you think it's going to be miserable. Just like, of course, there was a civil war when it didn't get solved well, it got solved through horrifying violence. But there is a reason to believe that policy and rhetoric can be put together, that Americans can return to the basic anger at exploitation and neglect, 
and a certain love of the people. We like each other. We would like things to get better. Most people are not crazies. Most people are not trying to bring this country to its knees. So there's good out there and it has to be encouraged and helped out because there has to be real evidence that problems are being solved for people to keep hoping. These have to be reasonable hopes, not fantasies. This is what realism requires today. As always, you have to, at the basic level, like America. But you also have to be aware of the crisis now and not to indulge happy talk, not to indulge people who are exploiters, not to indulge even the neglectful because the time for that has passed. All the reputation that made people confident on whatever from economics to foreign policy has been wiped out in crisis after crisis and 2020 is just a lot of crises piled on top of one another. It's not enough that there's problems with an epidemic killing lots of people, scaring many more. It's not enough that there's an economic crisis. It's not enough that there's rioting and burning cities down. Somehow it doesn't stop. Well, also, it demonstrates the importance of actual governing. Exactly. You know, Donald Trump had certain things right at the level of critique. A lot of things wrong, but he got certain things about how people were miserable. And Obama had some of those same things. But it also showed that governing is hard. Governing requires thought. Governing requires a sense of public purpose and a public spiritedness. You can get by for a while without those things if everything's going great. But if things go badly and you lack all of those things, eight months of Trump's presidency has demonstrated his complete lack of public interestedness, his prioritization of himself above everything else, his belief that everything can be showbiz the way if you showbiz just right. Actually, you probably can kind of do that, but you definitely can't do that while you're president. If he was a challenger and he had a Twitter account, you know, he'd be talking right now about Joe Biden was a pathetic loser. And he'd kind of be right. If only he's not the challenger, he's the president. But at the same time, the disease is deeper than Donald Trump because you already see a faction of Republican politicians who are not governing based on what the country needs now. They're governing based on what they presume the mood of the country will be a year from now. You know, they've written off 2020 electorally. They've written off the vulnerable senators electorally. They are projecting from the experiences of 1995 and 2009 that, you know, this Democratic president is going to be a Democratic Congress. is going to be a lot of spending. People will be against spending. They're going to be looking for anti-spending people. So best to get on, on the ground floor. I don't want to say they're trying to sabotage the stimulus because on one level, I think they want it to happen, but they want it to happen while they're posturing against it so they can get credit for having voted against it. This sociopathic game theory for dummies approach to politics is not a Donald Trump problem. It's also a Ted Cruz problem. It's also a Ron Johnson problem. They're voting against unemployment insurance. They're voting against other aid programs that are popular now, that are a good idea now. But they're counting on exploiting opposition to spending later, even though this spending makes sense now. They're producing a completely fraudulent opposition to good spending now in order to maximally exploit opposition to bad spending later. When we talk about Donald Trump being all public relations oriented, a lot more needs to be said about the respectable politicians who do the same thing. If it was just him, the problem would be much smaller. But it's not just him. He won because the corruption was widespread. It'll be there after he's gone. The understanding that it's everybody for themselves, that principles are just flags of convenience while you're campaigning, is deeply corrosive. If you had a secret ballot, Ted Cruz would vote for some version of the stimulus. Ron Johnson would. They just don't want to get the blame for it later on. And they're not even following public opinion. You could say, well, the people don't want it, even if it's the right thing to do. You know, you're a democratic politician. So in a democracy, you follow the people sometimes. They're not even doing that. They're doing something that they know is wrong, that they know the public is on the other side of, in anticipation of where the public's going to go based on historical analogy, so that they would be there to profit when the wheel turns. And it's just bafflingly unpublic spirited by people who call themselves principled and who love to talk about their patriotism. Yeah, because the country is at stake and a lot of people's lives on an everyday basis and the peace of mind and the assurance that America is still America of everybody in the country who sees the madness go on and nobody do anything helpful about it. So again, you need to put policy and rhetoric together. Again, you need to put the people and the elites together. We have not had that and nobody is offering it now. It will be people, I believe, who see the danger and fight against it who will be more trustworthy. People who have felt the suffering and realize what it means to be terrified that the basics of equal protection of the law are now in jeopardy in America. In some jurisdictions, liberal elites, because they are in power and they can get away with it, will simply not protect citizens or property. And they're looking, in fact, to get a big political victory out of this. They're looking to get their base pumped up fired up, if you will, to win in 2020. 
And there's not going to be any big Joe Biden thing to restore to liberal America civil peace because he doesn't give a damn about any of these things. None of them do. It's going to be people who insist and scream like crazy about that. The civil peace matters. People's private property, people's lives and security matter. And they deserve protection. They deserve a government that takes care of the basics of life. That should be the principle and the rhetoric. And that should extend all the way, of course, to people whose lives are destroyed online by woke mobs, by Silicon Valley oligarchs, by HR departments destroying people's freedom of speech and humiliating people who realize that they're too afraid of losing a job to speak up for themselves. All the way from your life to your political dignity as an American, speaking up for yourself, associating and voting as you see fit. All of these things are on the line, and those people whose rhetoric appeals to this directly, doesn't share the issue, doesn't lie about the problem, sees where there are votes to get by giving good things to people, offering real security, guarantees of people's rights to them. That's a future we can believe in. That's a reasonable hope, a political hope, full of the anger and the contest and the uncertainty, but the real hope, that's where we will find it. This has to be said again and again and again, because indeed our elites won't say it. No elites will say it. But I, for one, have not written off 2020 because I remember learning about 1972. Nixon, who was a far more competent executive than Trump, supervised the catastrophic four years of miserable economy and the bombing terrorist America, where there were thousands of horrifying incidents. Well, he still got reelected because people realized that liberals were for insanity and terrorism in the streets and Republicans were not. And so law and order might still win the election. I'm not writing this off because people's lives and security are on the line. Well, the thing is, he can't effectively run as a law and order president because he's a lawless person who's an interested in administration. And that's not going to change. He's a president, the executive. He has this entire infrastructure of legal advice, and he needed Senator Tom Cotton after like a week to tell him the legal basis for protecting federal government monuments. He's a critic, and critics have their place. He's a jester. There's a reason why the jester is not an entirely despised figure. He tells the truth about powerful people when nobody else will. But the jester's not the king, and you don't want the jester to be the king. And Donald Trump, he's not a tough guy. He's a big mouth. If you want to be a law and order president, you plausibly have to offer law and public order. Being a law and order president doesn't mean tweeting, law and order in all caps, but he sincerely thinks he does. And he's not going to change between now and the election. Now, that doesn't mean he's guaranteed to lose. I would put $10 on Biden at 3 to 1 odds. If someone offered me 9 to 1 odds, I would take Trump at 9 to 1 odds. Whereas in like 2016, it was more like a 2 to 1 odds that Hillary Clinton was winning. So the odds are in Biden's favor, but not necessarily overwhelmingly in Biden's favor. But there's a reason why Trump is floundering as a law and order president. Richard Nixon did not go on television and say, law and order, peace out, and then leave. He made arguments. Donald Trump, for the most part, doesn't. He's very reactive. And once again, he's uninterested in the problem, except as to how he can exploit it, which is why the Tucker Carlson critique works, where Tucker Carlson says, these things are happening and you're not stopping it and there's no evidence that you're going to stop it. And one of the criticisms about Donald Trump is that he's saying that if Biden wins, the things that are happening will happen. Well, they are happening. So, you know, it's tough to run a law and order campaign when you're visibly uninterested in it and you're visibly impotent. Can a law and order campaign win? Yeah, maybe, sure. Can he win it? It's much more difficult and it's despicable. I mean, his enemies despise him for it and his friends are demoralized by it, as everyone should be. Yeah, that's probably the best place to close. If you want to win a campaign, you have to make sure that the people who support you believe in you more than they believe in the opposition. And that stuff is decided on election day. Pete, thanks a lot for joining me on this. As I said, I think most of the elite opinions that have organized politics, policy, rhetoric are now revealed to be not just insufficient, but insane. These are all people whose reputation has outlived its uses. They are still alive, but are merely the ruins of whatever influence they once held or whatever office they once held. And is the same for a bottom feeder consultant and for a former president. And that's a really bad situation for a country to be in. But it's not all to the bad. Many good things have been revealed, not just that there are people like Tucker Carlson now, whose second act has been remarkable, but I believe our mentor, Peter Lawler, his reputation is due for reevaluation because he was realistic and because he was looking for a more populist American politics that was nevertheless principled, that took honorable people as seriously as they took themselves and said that this is what America needs. And maybe people will learn that flim-flam men, confidence men, and all the exploiting elites are not good. It might be that people realize that you need people who are more serious.
the charms that were once created through advertising, essentially, which is what television had to offer, which is what social media has to offer. Look at this glittering celebrity super produced idea of politics. You can't make Biden look glamorous. And the glamour of Obama itself waned. Maybe once this fantasy subsides, certain more serious, more practical things can be done. You know, when Peter said that things get better and worse all the time, partly what he meant is that it's only when things get bad that people become serious. It's only when it's suddenly obvious that your basic liberties, your basic security of person are now under threat. This might lead people to be more serious and to reject wokeism. And everybody has the electoral chance to do so if they work for it very, very hard. So this is not, I think, an unreasonable hope. And I think that indeed Peter's idea of how to talk about politics, to accept the realities, we're all confronting and to admit that it doesn't get very good. But our situation is that of a free people. And that's nothing to sneeze at. That's not something that should be discounted. For all the bad things that happen, people still have the chance every election. And the batting average isn't bad for America, which you can't say about any other regime. There's some reason for confidence. None of the arrogance of the hyperpower or the end of history anymore, but it could be done. So I hope that people will listen to this and be persuaded that there's a more realistic, more practical way of looking at American politics that is more democratic and more principled at the same time. And that this is what we now need. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Tadis. <laughs>